Hey, what it do, everyone? It's your boy Jake Hurley, aka Local Boy, and today I'm speaking with Roisin Kybert, the author of The Disconnect, a personal journey through the internet. A self-described techno-dystopian, Roisin uses vignettes from her own life to illustrate the ways in which surveillance capitalism has changed how we relate to ourselves and the world around us. Personally, my brain turns to mush as soon as the recording light goes on, but Roisin made so many brilliant and interesting points, I just had to share this. First of all, thanks for doing it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and I absolutely love the book, I have to say. Like, genuinely, it was one of those pieces of, like, cultural criticism where you're just going through... And like every anecdote really just resonated personally with me. And it, I, I had so many moments of just like, I don't know, like I, I felt a lot of this stuff before, but just hearing you articulate it was amazing. That's um, so lovely to hear. Yeah. So my first question, I guess, is just like you describe yourself quite early on in the book as a techno dystopian. And just could you extrapolate on that? And just for myself, like, I just wanted to know, like, are you kind of, is it like a hauntological thing of your yearning for like a past that never came to be? Or is it more so like you name dropped Ted Kaczynski? Are you on more of a, <laughs> of a, you know, embrace tradition, reject modernity tip at times? Well, I mean, as it must be clear from from this recording, I, I live in a cabin and uh, <laughs> I I write only by hand and I'm very careful to um, artisanally sharpen my pencils every day. <laughs> That's what yeah. I focus on. It's my meditation. No, um, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the Kaczynski stuff because, like, I, you know, you're always sort of um, flirting with derangement or yeah. maybe even getting cancelled for uh, writing without any critically, like, completely uncritically of a serial killer. And I yeah, didn't want to yeah, do yeah. that. I mean, I acknowledge <laughs> the crimes. Um, yeah. I just thought the manifesto is an interesting one. And it's funny also how he looms over culture. Um, yeah. And how, you know, even kind of adjoining that, like the word Luddite looms over culture. Mm. When I think where I stand is something much more accepting. I don't think Ted Kaczynski would approve, actually, of my attitude to technology. Because mine is that it's just here now and we can't resist it. It, Like, Mm. maybe he predicted that, actually, when he was active. Yeah. (laughs) That's some time ago now. But, like, the... A warped version of the future that the techno utopians uh, wanted or thought they wanted mm. has come to be. Uh, some of them have gone out and written mea culpa articles at this point, you know, yeah. regretting yeah. their participation in it. Something else that really resonated me, like with me, was just how you kind of mentioned how the internet is like boring now compared to how it used to be, and I agree with that. But like, why? Why do you feel that's became the case? What's been the the major change? I mean, there's a book from about, how long ago is it? Eight years ago called The Filter Bubble. That, Eli Pariser, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. And anticipates all of this. I just think at this point, the data isn't even being harvested from human spontaneity because the algorithms fed by the data that was once fed by the spontaneity are now so effective yeah. That we're just behaving entirely predictably. Yeah, we're exactly yeah, yeah. where they want us. There was also a, another inspiration for reaching that conclusion was um, before, I think it was about a year or two before his death, uh, I got to interview Mark Fisher, Amazing. which meant so much. It was such a transformative moment for me because his, and I think in life, 
he definitely was exactly like his books. It was this extremely knowledgeable but extremely accessible mixture of theory, pop culture, life, feelings, putting himself in there too, putting his own mental state at the heart of things in a very honest way that wasn't self-indulgent. And um, I interviewed him in the context of this Facebook group that he had started called Boring Dystopia, (laughs) um, which I I wrote this like vice piece about it. Um, But I think he was maybe going to do a book about it. I, I don't really know. Or maybe he just scrapped the idea afterwards. He kind of talked vaguely about thinking of doing it. What was, he was that, working on something. No, go on. He was working on a book when he died, wasn't he? It was called like Acid something or other. Oh, Acid Communism. Acid Communism, yeah. Yeah, and they've published some of the last lectures now, actually. I haven't read them yet. And I haven't read The Weird and the Eerie yet either. And I really need to. But I'm also a little scared too. Yeah. Um, just that like it could be... I don't know, it's impossible not to read signs of someone's mental state. Yeah, yeah. So soon before they death. But I will eventually read them because he's a wonderful writer. Um, but yeah, that, that idea of a boring dystopia, he was talking about England and he was talking about this in a way very similar to um, Philip K. Dick, this idea of us all being kind of herded around by technologies that were created ostensibly mm. to make our lives easier or to make life run smoothly, you know, in cities or in corporate places and like you know supermarkets train stations but but really ultimately what it's doing is kind of destroying the human spirit Uh, yeah (laughs) um, uh, i just remember things like pictures posted to that group of train tickets just saying no change (laughs) (laughs) the word void would appear a lot and um it was really interesting as a little experiment like how many people are thinking this way Mm. uh evidently a lot Um, yeah and I think that's something that like is kind of a common theme, like between the book itself and Mark Fisher's writing. Like so many, like even the idea of hauntology is more easily understood through the analogy of burial uh, yeah. and just like his love of burial. And I just thought that was kind of like you perfectly use vaporwave as like a means to express your ideas in the book. Vaporwave was just made for Mark Fisher, wasn't it? But it was probably made by people yeah. who read Mark Fisher. I, I, yeah, you know, yeah. That confluence is so clear. Um, it's funny too, because like, um, and probably to people who don't know Vaporwave, these are the lines that sound really like wank, frankly. Um, mm. But <laughs> this idea that it's not just a, a, a type of music, that it's actually a way of seeing, that it might even be a lifestyle. It could be all of these things. I think like people of a certain age, probably my generation, your generation, but younger. I'd Mm. say people a little bit younger too, but I don't know many, so I don't know. But uh, we all inherently have that flattened sense of history. Like we've perceived everything through through a screen, essentially. Mm. And uh, everything has that deadened irony to it, you know? And, and, And meanwhile, our perception of the present and crucially the future is deadened too. Um, and yeah. we've grown up without certain things and with certain things. Um, like the image, I don't think it's any coincidence that like the imagery of shopping malls mm. <clears throat> appears so much in Vaporwave because um, probably <laughs> a lot of people, not only is there that consumerist angle to it, but also they are the sort of proverbial, like the liminal spaces and people can't go home because they live with their parents. It's just like, there are certain ways of thinking around that. Um, Mm. And also just this idea of a retreat into technology's past 
um, while being so constantly, insistently haunted by technologies present it plays a bigger role in our lives i think than it probably has ever in any previous generation's lives so mm. it makes sense that we would live in the shadow of like forged futures yeah and i even got that kind of sense of mall era nostalgia that you get from vaporwave in one of the pieces in the book when you're speaking about how you used to work at the dundrum shopping center doing yeah. the makeup counter and like while kind of that at the time might have just seen, seemed like kind of empty space of like consumption just the intimacy of doing a stranger's makeup seemed really appealing, especially nowadays in the coronavirus where I'm just like any form of contact or intimacy, I'd be like, that would be amazing. Completely. That juxtaposition. I remember that because at the time of that job, just intending to make some money. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I did come to enjoy the level of human interaction that came with it. It was scarce. It was only on weekends that we'd actually get customers. Like, I can't believe some of those shops in the Dundrum Centre stayed open as long as they did. Yeah. <laughs> um, no one would come through. It was like some kind of, you know, 28 days later or something. It, it was like occasionally, once every couple of hours, an older lady would come through and I would instantly approach her and try to sell her makeup. Mm. And she'd be like, can you show me the way to the door, please? <laughs> <laughs> please help me. <laughs> so I'm not here real. for business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was like that. That shop was dying. I, I mm. haven't named it. I wonder if people can guess what it is. It's gone now. Um, but yeah, shopping malls as haunted places—it's such a natural fit, isn't it? Because like some of them were already haunted. There was originally a scene in that essay, a second mall scene. I mean, there's two. There's two, isn't there? There's me writing about uh, working in Dundrum, yeah. and then I write about going to the, the Westfield, the, big, the biggest big mall, mall in Europe. Mm. But also, there was a third one which was um, taken out in the end. But <laughs> it was um, it was me and someone, uh, and the reason it was taken out was for chronology, actually, because uh, he appears later in the book. But it was me and someone taking ketamine in a German shopping mall. Mm. Um, and the, the mall is actually the site of the Gestapo headquarters in history. Oh, my God. <laughs> they built a mall on top of it. And it's so weird. It's mad. And it's been decorated in this sort of like faux art deco style. And oh. it has all these like little arrows directing you. It almost, it reminds me now of um, the game Bioshock. Like oh, this yeah. sort of weird kind of uh, art deco kitsch, but lots of these words like wonder, um, oh, no. you know, forward or something. And then when you know, like, you know, the history of the place, it's sinister. Oh, the worst environment to do ketamine. <laughs> but, but we went to see John Wick. Oh, that's, that's, that's a great movie to Which do. Which is a natural fit for yeah, that, really that substance, I feel. <laughs> um, yeah, but the mall itself, yeah, very sinister. And I mean, it doesn't take much to turn a mall sinister, I feel. I think like Dawn of the Dead proved that. Yeah, absolutely. There really is like an underlying sense of doom in malls. Like it's just always upsetting to be there. Uh, <laughs> but like, yes, I have one another little question here. And in the book, you mentioned that like, for you or like your turning point of how you felt about the internet was kind of 2016. Um, just like, what do you, to what do you like attribute that? Or do you remember a particular moment that was like the shift for how you thought about it? No, you know, it's so interesting because when I was in it, I couldn't even notice how bad it was. I just thought mm. it was reality. Um, it was like a bad relationship with the internet. You know, yeah. you only realize how bad it was afterwards. Um, I, 
I knew that something was happening because I had to explain. I remember having to explain the term alt right to my parents. Yeah. That was when I knew, Jesus, this, this online stuff. Like it's really gone mainstream now and it's a threat. Yeah. It's an actual threat. Like, and the very nature, this is a kind of conflict like at the heart of think, one of the themes in the disconnect, which I'm not sure I have an answer to. I believe that like anonymity on the internet is a good and fair thing. I honestly yeah. think if we had more anonymity, we'd probably be a bit healthier as a society. Absolutely. Because even though like, even though it's, yeah, even though it's good to, you know, be able to hold someone accountable if they're doing like awful things, which one hopes mm. they won't, but inevitably happens online. Um, even though that side of things makes the argument for real names, I think also the real name policies, especially but brought in by Facebook, have sort of reinforced this idea of like spiritual hygiene. You know, yeah. that like, oh, what do you have to hide if you don't put your exactly. whole life on the internet? And I don't think that's fair at all. I think we should preserve the creative potential of, of online life. And through that, we should be allowed to, you know, call ourselves things like Kiki Cannibal. And Absolutely. <laughs> a scene name. Bring back scene yeah. names. Everyone should have scene names as a yes. policy. No, no. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I do think that like, and this is inherently bound up in what happened in 2016, because suddenly the really scary thing was you know 4chan or um where else i I guess things like discord did that even exist back then i don't think so 8chan was going as well jesus began i think yeah and admittedly there is like a fine line and when you create these anonymous spaces yeah there's now proof in the form of things like 8chan that like bad things happen (laughs) Um, really bad things but (laughs) It just, it really did become a war, didn't it, in 2016? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every platform was consumed by like SJW being owned. It was a real, the culture war was just like so prevalent. And I think as well, that was the year where, like, pardon the pun, but like the disconnect between people's like perception of the world and how the internet had formed it to be just came, became so clear because that year, been doing my undergraduate thesis on the alt-right and oh, interesting. yeah so like i spent that entire year on 4chan essentially and i was just like to me trump's victory was not a surprise at all but mm. it was just shocking to see like the response like people were like this was so out of left field but i feel like everyone who spent time on the internet in the time in the run-up was like no this has been the predominant like yeah. i mean Like, obviously, it was a campaign that had horrible consequences, essentially. But just the sheer energy around the momentum, the momentum was just and the way he almost like he almost harnessed this way, just making being wrong consistently more making like turning that into being right. Like he goes beyond being made of Teflon. You know, he he had this, yeah, it's a kinetic thing, isn't it? Like Mm. the more hate you threw at him, the more momentum he gained. I think like for me, and I think as Irish people, in a way we had a little bit of a a head start in having our perceptions shattered because Brexit happened. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly for British people, that must have been the case. But even watching like from nearby in Ireland, because I in no way expected Brexit to happen. Yeah. I honestly just did not one in any way expect that and once it did it was like having the carpet pulled out it just made me realize okay i'm not seeing reality 
like my Instagram is not reality. This is obviously not like a reflection of how the rest of this nation like thinks. Mm. So I'm going to have to pay more attention. And, and it's, you know, it's like a kind of Ouroboros. Like right now I despise this conversation around cancel culture because I feel like there's Mm. no way to, to have it without giving ammunition to the worst of both sides. I know that sounds really like I'm the kind of uncool thing. I sound like a centrist. (laughs) I I realize how how boring that is for me to say. But the truth is, obviously, on the left, there are people who are like really in full vigilante mode and they're hurting other people. But on the right, there's a load of awfulness being justified and a load of also scaremongering and insults. Like, Like, you can't always call people hysterics. Like they're yeah. not always hysterics. Like, That's just that is gaslighting, actually. Just before we we went on this call, I was looking at uh, the journal posted like a piece you wrote, and <laughs> under the comment was just the typical like Irish Patriot three thousand faceless account that just said like woke nonsense. And it's like, what about the piece was woke? I feel like he just saw a woman riding and instantly went on attack mode. It's very (laughs) weird that, like, I got written up by that website, Unheard, which is, Hmm. I think, where all the cancelled people go. And they wrote a piece. It was weird because the heading was quite cruel towards me. It was saying, like, why can't millennials write a proper book? Uh, But then the piece itself was fine. It it wasn't actually that critical. Hmm. But it did say that I upheld the cultural orthodoxy. And I was Hmm. like, I I feel like you're just deciding that by looking at me or something. Because, like... I'm not okay, so I'm not like unheard material. I'm not that angry at like woke. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But like, I am definitely questioning it. Um, mm. I don't want to fit into any box because I think writing is a lovely place to claim back a sort of slow thinking. Like, I have my politics off the page, and they are yeah. left wing. But mm. the reality is, like in the book itself, I didn't want to make the politics central to it because one, I had just overdosed on internet politics, and I, I yeah. don't want to write another culture war book or something. Mm. It's not interesting to me. It's boring. It's but also, yeah. the, the shape, the forces that shaped it to me are are bipartisan. And they're in fact universal. They're permeating every aspect of our lives. So like before you even form your politics, be aware of the forces online that are already herding you into, you know, into little roots. And, and like you can't actually begin to think for yourself until you understand that like you're being manipulated online. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, as well, like an interesting kind of anecdote in the book was like um the 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 date you had with this man oh, yeah. who you were kind of, he was like sussing you out to see yeah. did you hold the same like ideological stance as him and then it was interesting i don't know i i don't think you name her who it was in the book will i say who it is or oh yeah yeah, 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 well, yeah. it was obviously about angela nagel's book i assume but like uh, yeah i really was... do feel that that is such a like hallmark of the millennial experience like every the start of every interaction there's this like awkward dance where each party is trying to assess like where they stand in terms of the other other person's like ideological position you know it was interesting editing that part of the book because um you know it went through this extremely scrupulous copy edit and Mm. i am and they were kind of asking me like okay well what are the good the good and bad like the pros and cons of what's happening here because you can't paint it as universally negative. Like you want to work out, is someone a bigot, you know, or, yeah. or are they just really ignorant or, or like 
aggressive. Hmm. So obviously you would want to suss that out about a person early on before you're on like date number three or something. (laughs) And, And that's true. I totally get that. I just think that it is a kind of hyper awareness. It's like a sixth sense that people who've come through the likes of 2016 Mm. have developed. And it's not inherently a bad thing, but it's also a facet of something that is bad, I think, which is the personal brand. It's the always being on, you know, always afraid that you might slip up. And it seems inherently disingenuous and also untenable because Mm. like I, I wanted to draw attention to this idea like that men are talking differently when women are around, which yeah, almost yeah. strikes me as Victorian. Like, oh, we're off to the parlor to have our cigars and make unwoke it's jokes. It's archaic, yeah, I really... You know? <laughs> yeah, like, come on, I can handle some bad taste. I'm not going to, like, write you up as a yeah. member of 8chan, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's not quite that bad. Um, and it also... I I don't want to feed like this idea, the writers building of the so-called woke left, like that, you know, uh, we're all waiting to just attack each other constantly Mm. and find some flaw. I don't think it's like that. I think in practice, most of us are much more pragmatic and can like live with each other and get along. But um, yeah, it does sort of loom over you and, and in an inherently dehumanizing scenario, like online dating, Mm. (laughs) these things, it's almost like the new version of saying like, Oh, I really like Nirvana. Oh, what songs have you heard? Yeah. It's <laughs> like Teen Spirit. <laughs> you know? um, like, it's that. It's yeah, just like some... what you're saying about um, like how the right kind of positions the left as having this like self cannibalizing, um, like positions this kind of dance of sussing each other out as like inherently left thing. But yeah, I think it's definitely just amongst every ideological position now we're so used to like mediating how we present ourselves online that that's just kind of poisoned sincerity in our interactions like we're always just doing this yeah yeah and i wonder also like is it me or have what what age are you 26 you're 26 okay so yeah i can vaguely group myself in a generation with you but i'm good i'm a good (laughs) bit older because i'm 32 so that's Mm. maybe it's different but is it the same for people your age where like there's a real sesh culture, like where people just get plastered once in a while yeah. and like really high and the release, and like, yeah, every now and, and then. And then they release and they, mm. they confess everything. Yeah. And they're really sincere with each other, yes, you know, and yes, like it's yes. an outpouring of sincerity. And then they probably go back to the, the performance, the kind of life drive. 10%. Yeah. That is I so mean, true. <laughs> that's interesting isn't it i mean I, su- I suppose every generation has that because the, the old version of that would be you know always wearing a hat and uh you know being extremely polite <laughs> in a century ago you know but yeah. um but yeah we do have that sort of weighing around our necks now i i don't know i just wanted to capture it in the book i didn't want to come down on one side or another you know mm. um but there is definitely a tension at work a lot of it is gender-based a lot of it is politics-based and it is getting in it is getting in between people, I think. Yeah. Um, and another thing, going back to something we were speaking about earlier that like really uh was quite interesting. Like I think another central theme throughout the book is the idea of realness, which like you say you first encountered through ball culture and Paris is burning and then the realness. The realness. <laughs> yes, yes. Slater yes. boots and so on. I love that though. It's so potent <laughs> as an idea. Like yeah. the real And you tie it into to Normcore and how it's been like co-opted by CEOs as like a means of insulating themselves from 
like critique. Uh, but yeah, can you just speak to that a little bit? Do you feel like, I guess, the internet and like neoliberal capital is kind of like depersonalized us all or like we're all living in a state of derealization to an extent? Yeah, there has to be. It's It's been really interesting for me seeing who picks up on the spiritual element of the book yeah. because I'm, I'm, I'm like, listeners can't see, but behind me I have like a shrine, uh, like a homemade kind of weird art oh, shrine cool. where I have Glitter, Jesus and Mary, also Ganesh, also the child of Prague, given to me that by your so brother. Cool. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Made in the Vatican, hand-painted by nuns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I have a Krishna, I think, as well. And I have a Tamagotchi and a load of other idols and, and a statue of Elvis. Is it um, the Tamagotchi from the book? The same it one? is the Tamagotchi, oh, yeah. Cool. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's quite chunky. They're kind of bigger than I remember the old Tamagotchis being. But, like, I love religious culture. I love, like, mm. um, religious kitsch as well, hence yeah. Glitter Jesus and Glitter Mary. But um, anyway, yeah, that it all comes back to the soul to me. Like... And I, there needs to be a secular way to talk about this too. I suppose like we use the word soul to describe music. We describe it like yeah. like yeah. almost as this like uh, ineffable thing, but nonetheless not religious because I, I, I don't want this to be an exclusively religious conversation. Hmm. But I think we're all scrambling for um, the, something sincere, the kind of core of humanity. Yeah. Um, and in ways we, like it was important to me to talk about love in the book, for instance. Um, and love is a sort of, route to talking about this i think um because mo like a large number of people in their lives will experience something like love if not love <laughs> and and for the rest of us there's ecstasy um, <laughs> but uh you know it, it is that it's it's where does the human still live because i i don't see a lot of room for what i think of as the soul uh, in online life and in online discourse, it, it leaks out in strange places. Like I found myself crying in front of my laptop yesterday, uh, looking at pictures of rescued dogs. Um, and <laughs> this may well be hormonal, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also think it's a little scrap of humanity, um, sort of finding its way into the feed where the rest of the time, it's all a bit of a cynical performance, you know? Um, yeah, to have to have these forces, I think on some level all of us know that we have these forces scrambling to market and sell our humanity. Um, yeah. And that this is actually our lives. This is the contents of an entire life uh, fragmented into tiny little segments that can each be put to some use and that will probably live on long after we die. Um, because mm. even though, you know, we do have, we're, I guess we're lucky, we have the right to be forgotten. But it's never fully forgotten. Like I think Facebook have gone on record to say that, that even yeah. if you get all your data back, it's still going to be somewhere with a third party or something like, um, so then that becomes a kind of unconscious race. You know, where can I convey my soul? Yeah. I think writing is art is the place to do it. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I can kind of agree with you. Like we've religion definitely, justified our suffering which is always there and it's still here now like there's almost a virtue in suffering but like we certainly don't have that now and i guess like the answer to all our suffering i guess is like posited as like ssris or just like <laughs> i don't know like there is no answer for it and yeah a lot of this does seem to come from like society has become soulless and like we're given no other option really you know 
This interests me so much because, um, and I think probably whatever I write next will be heavily mm. exploring these questions. Yeah. I've worked in so many of like, maybe not fully what would fit the definition of a bullshit job. Like, yeah. like my boyfriend used to literally just put coupons in piles. <laughs> like that was his job. Like I've done better jobs than that. I've been lucky yeah. in that sense. But I have had some pretty ridiculous nonsense. Yeah, well, jobs. I got the, the document shredding that we were just speaking about before we started fabulous. recording. <laughs> but you could you could probably find out like some dirt on companies that way at the very least to lighten yeah. your day. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have like I tried, but it was just written in such litigious like <laughs> oh, yeah. over complex. It's language. actually like some warlord, you know, in South Dublin. They're yeah. like sheltering some. Like the, the deepest evil, like and he's shredding all his documents. <laughs> retired Nazis or something. Um, anyway, yeah. So just that that kind of question, which I think of as the distribution of meaning in life. Yeah. Um, which I feel like it, it, you know, like New Age kind of thinking is having such a revival online. Like I spent a, an hour this morning almost watching tarot card readers on YouTube because I was just having a shit day. I was yeah. feeling like I have no concept of the future. The pandemic is just going to go on forever. Like the yeah. future is quite literally cancelled right now. It really like is. it's not even a kind of theoretical thing. It's it's, it's real. It's not the slow cancellation um, I, of the future anymore. It's like yeah. right now. It's now just it's gone. Don't think. Forget it's it. Canceled. Yeah. I, <laughs> Pull the band-aid um, off. But yeah, like I actually really was comforted by this stranger pulling cards for my star sign, honestly. And I was able to just suspend my disbelief and just go all in. And I, it was really kind of a raw connection because I just desperately need that. I need to be able to plan. I need to look out for something, you know, some synchronicity in my life. But um, work, it's so, it's so interesting how we're told constantly to do what we love. Like yeah. that still looms large yeah. in nearly all tech companies, right? I mean, mm. and no you're not you're doing what someone else loves and they're using that to justify probably treating Your you quite badly. yeah yeah but to find the thing to find the thing that actually rewards you and to pursue it it's a noble thing but it might not even be actually doable i mean i, I don't know what it's my future is right now yeah my, I've, like in, in the scheme of things i mm. often get paid like 10 times more for work i don't want to do yeah than for the work I want to do. It's still that way. Writing a book hasn't suddenly made that go away. It's very, it's going to be very, very hard. And in fact, it might take a degree of delusion on my part. It might take me fully adopting like the do what you love, uh, a YouTube astrologer. attitude, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It might fully take delusion. Like Emmanuel Carrere calls writing one of the delusional professions. And I think <laughs> that's entirely true. It's a little bit like people on Drag Race. It's like you mm. have to entirely believe in yourself. There is no way you're not going to win, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the same for music. It's just like the number of people who can make it are, is like incredibly minor. So you do just have to have that ridiculous self-belief. But yeah, I mean, it's just we have to set ourselves delusion. <laughs> and then when you achieve the thing you have to then delusionally tell yourself you're amazing you've done something world shatteringly innovative and groundbreaking yeah. and you have to tell yourself that because it, this is it that, that's the other really weird side of all this like I wonder if it was in real life would I feel it more but I don't fully know how I feel about the book being out there in the world I mean do you get that about music it, it's a really strange sensation absolutely yeah I really do and I have 
for me, I'm like a very obsessive person. So once I put out a song, like I will have loved it before it was released to the public, but then all I can hear is like the imperfections once it's out. Yeah. And I'll just drive myself up the wall, just being like, I'm a monster. It's no good. Oh, like, I think CBT <laughs> is good for that stuff. Like, because that's yeah. all in all in your head. And it's like Absolutely. when I used to act and I, I, if you forget a, a line when you're on stage, the audience doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah, Unless yeah, you make, yeah. Make a big deal of it. Like, yeah, like nobody is aware of this. Even like my label mates or whatever can hear these like imperceptible differences that I'm obsessing. But to my ear, they're like yeah. huge. Like by order of my, it's just like ridiculous how loud it is to my ear. I just stop loving the thing after I produce it. Like mm. I, the typical arc of like writing an essay for me is I become obsessed to the point where like, like the last thing I wrote this week was about, um, it's kind of an essay framed around a YouTube video. I don't know if it's even going to go ahead. I, I think it will. I don't know. We'll see. Mm. But it's it's framed around a, a deep sea exploration video. Nice. And it's written in eight parts, like tentacles. And it's a piece about just watching the deepest part of the sea through, um, well, maybe not quite the deepest, but one like mm. accessible deepest part yeah. of the sea. The deep, <laughs> what's it called again? The midnight zone. Mm. And then below that, there's the abyssal zone. So cool. I'm obsessed. But anyway, it's like <laughs> all about these like deep sea creatures and stuff. And literally for maybe two or three days there, I was like emailing people in the middle of the night, like, look at this squid. This is yeah. amazing. Like, why are <laughs> are we even bothering with anything else all i want to know about is the sea and, mm. and now the piece is done i just sort of want to just give it away to the ether i mean i love squids but you know mm. it, it's done now it goes out into the world and i get obsessed with something else and i just keep going keep moving like yeah. a shark yeah yeah <laughs> i guess this kind of brings me on to my next question which is like not so much even for the piece it's just something that like i need to hear myself like <laughs> One thing, like the mental health struggles of the book, I guess, just like really resonated with me because I essentially like had that exact same trajectory uh, as you did. And uh, like largely for the same reasons, like as I you said, were when studying I was doing, them. yeah, it's like literally was what I was spending all my spare time in. And even down to like, I went to the psychiatrist because thinking it was BPD, which you say you're diagnosed with in the mm -hmm. In the book, it turned out that they, they tell me I'm uh, bipolar too or whatever, but I also really? feel, yeah, but I feel there's a, there's a big gendered component to this as well. I think women uh, are I disproportionately, think so too. yeah, but yeah. like, I guess my question is, um, like how much of, uh, of these issues do you feel is down to the individual and how much is to like the wider kind of society we live in? And also just like an observation about BPD, like why I, I was kind of worried that I had it, but I also feel as we're talking about like, an unstable sense of self nowadays is just like going to happen for everyone. Because as we say, we're just like mediating ourselves, depending on what platform we're posting on to like present a certain image of ourselves, you know? That it was, that just reminds me of um, something after I got diagnosed, I really rejected it in the beginning. I didn't mm. like, I didn't want to accept it. And I, so I knew other people who'd been diagnosed with it and I didn't see any similarities between yeah. them and me. So it was really strange. But, um, one thing that occurred to me was when I was in my undergrad, I wrote an entire thesis on instability of identity um, in Flann O'Brien, in The yeah. Third Policeman. Like I was always drawn to unreliable narrators, but also identity-less or identity-shifting narrators in, yeah. in fiction. I was always intrigued by that idea. And it's just funny that like where, and now, you know, a, a kind of, 
outsider's perspective on identity, I feel, because mm. I'm not that invested in my identity. I think this is why I'm so into drag queens as well. Yeah. It's definitely, again, something I'm going to write about in the future. But um, the kind of malleability, the weird fluidity of, of identity to me um, is... It's an endlessly perplexing thing, like especially in terms of things like gender. The book mm. is finding mostly, I think, a male audience. Um, yeah. And maybe I'm overanalyzing things, but like I really did think I wrote an androgynous book. Like, yes, I would have thought so as well, I guess. But yeah, I think that books are so read. gendered. Books are mm. so gendered. And whether or not I intended to, I think I've written a book that's a little bit more male than female. It shouldn't be uh, by any means. I, I think it's all to do with marketing, really. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that's all kind of jumping around the the core issue of yeah identity bpd um i do think it's bpd is an interesting one like you can become delusional like emmanuel career perfect state for a writer delusional (laughs) but a delusion is not like a full uh flight of fancy it's not fully kind of detaching from reality right like it's rooted in something real but I, i i mean maybe the more sort of severe hallucinations are rooted in reality too. I don't know. But um, for me, that that part of it is really interesting because that indicates to me that, yeah, there definitely are outside factors. When I'm in stressful situations, when I'm in like bigger stressful environments or just states of the world, yeah. <laughs> the state of the world, um, <laughs> you know, if, if the state of the world is really getting in on me, um, I am liable to become really just nihilistic, just yeah. so like extreme in my thinking. It's all like black and white um, thinking. Yeah, I'm the exact yeah, same. I'm really prone to that. Yeah, but it yeah, does I guess tell like, me... do you have any tips for <laughs> dealing yeah, with this? I, do you have any like? Think, please God, tell I mean, me. <laughs> you've probably you've probably been through all this yourself, but I, mm. I mean, I, I think self knowledge is really the only thing like we can kind of arm ourselves with, and that exists not only that's not about building up some ironclad image of what you are or something, because I don't think that, I think that fluidity of identity is actually a good thing because it makes you more resilient. Mm. But I do think in the moment, um, trying to be as grounded as you can in your body, um, you know, whether that's done through like getting out for a walk, meditating, yoga, to me, yoga is really, really good because it syncs the breath and the mind and the body all together. Um, so that rootedness, that's like your protection against flying away. So when I'm like going through Twitter there are times when I see things on social media. I think Twitter is the worst one. I've taken Facebook out of my life. So I only really have, I have Twitter and Instagram and I'll probably take away Twitter once the book has been out a little longer. Yeah. Um, you'll go back off it again. But like, I will get a pit in my stomach. Like I will literally start shaking, seeing mm. something. And it shouldn't hurt me, but it definitely does. And the ideal place is to step away before that even happens and to like yeah. pinpoint it and be like, okay, you're starting to think in black and white. You're starting to catastrophize. You're starting to, you know, get carried away here. Mm. Stop it. Make your life easier. Step away. Something I do a lot is play video games. Um, they, like I'm playing, I just started last night, uh, Super Liminal after watching ContraPoints playing it. Oh yeah, I've meant to watch her Twitch stream actually. Yeah, yeah, I really love her streams. I, they're yeah. really calming. Like her voice is really calming. Like that's one yes. of her bits that I love. And also the knowledge that like she's slowly getting more and more drunk. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of lovable. Like, yes. uh, I'm not that into like Let's Plays, but uh, I think I would I could watch Contrapoints for hours on end. She's just like really great. But yeah. that game, Super Liminal, that is a really interesting. Um, it has a really interesting effect mentally and emotionally mm. on you because you're problem solving, um, and it has this kind of eerie dreamlike setting. Um, but yeah, before that, for about two months, I was playing Cuphead like relentlessly, and I was just drowning out my own anxieties with like new anxieties induced by this horribly difficult game (laughs) i mean i guess yeah like gaming for me is like i'm not a huge gamer but like there is just some element of just like ritual and immersion that's really comforting like for me skate three like i I haven't Mm. progressed past the same stage just because i go on (laughs) the same track for the past like five years (laughs) oh oh my god it's actually so comforting to hear that because i i was stuck on one one level of cuphead for like Mm. a month it but was, it's, I, I enjoy stupid. that element. You know what I mean. I just love yeah. the familiarity. It's so comforting. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. I guess, I think, yeah. I no. I I guess I just have one more like quick observation that I was <laughs> thinking. Like when we're speaking about uh, identity, and it's funny you mentioned Flan O'Brien because I was thinking the chapter on Mark Zuckerberg kind of reminds me of like the modern day on Bale booked. Like the norm oh aesthetic, God. just like co-opting, you know, working class aesthetics or just like the, no, not even working class, just the perceived idea of like the everyman or what they wear. Like that's the new yeah. thing of CEOs, I guess. Normcore. I mean, there is definitely a class element to Normcore. I remember reading an article years ago. It might've been in like Freeze or something, one of those like art publications. Mm. And someone had gone onto Google Maps and yeah. used it to like freeze frame images of sort of down home America, basically. Yeah. I don't know if that's like the politically correct way to say it, but just <laughs> most kind of impoverished, like ne- neglected parts of like middle America, I think yeah. mostly, and maybe the South. And it, it was definitely like they were holding these pictures up as normcore, as mm. like having an aesthetic, but it was inherently really patronizing. You know, it definitely that's, was like, yeah. um, yeah, so there's definitely that element of it. I think that's definitely part of it, but also there's just something psychotic to like dictating what normal and healthy is. Like yeah. that's the first thing you learn in therapy that there really is no such thing as normal. It's individual. It's it's like what makes you have a happy and healthy life. And I do think like Facebook is the most obvious example. Um it has dictated to us on a level akin to something like a new political regime it's dictated to us what normal person behavior is you know (laughs) how do we have the nice and cool chats well we have them in public and we we decorate each other's comments with likes and (laughs) and then you know um if you they, if it doesn't get a set number of likes, then it wasn't a worthwhile yeah. conversation. <laughs> Do you <laughs> remember? Logical, uh... like <laughs> when you actually take a step back and like look at it from the alien, you know, uh, just a complete Observer. alien perspective. It's truly mad stuff. <laughs> like that anyone would beat themselves up for not meeting that standard of like Mark Zuckerberg's idea of a walking talking. Yeah. You know, and like, look at the guy, look at the answers that he gave when he went to Congress. Like, it was oh God, yeah. I wrote Plan God originally before he went to Congress and I had to like read it aloud at a launch. Um, I wrote it for the singing fly and, um, 
I read it out and it was the same day he'd first gone to Congress. And I was like, oh shit, like everything's going to change. But then afterwards I went and watched the report and he lived up to his completely. Do you remember his like uh, PR tour around America just being the everyman? Yes. Remember his yes. lib cooking video? That was the most disconcerting thing <laughs> I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just wonder what is it about his face? He just doesn't show expression somehow. Yeah. He's, he's such an enigma. He really is like a true enigma in plain sight. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess going back to what we were speaking of one second ago, like, do you think, I do feel there is kind of like a class of store patronizing element to Normcore. And I think mm. once again, Mark Fisher was talking about how like partially why he doesn't find music after 94 exciting is just because neoliberalism has made it so working class people in the UK wouldn't have access to art schools in the way they traditionally would have up yeah. to now. So I guess Normcore is kind of like the middle class, like tastemakers idea of what working class is, which is always going to be inherently uncomfortable. Like, do you yeah. feel that there's 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 that kind of element of classism to it? Always, it's always going to be there. I think it's you know it's that classic age old thing of like ostensibly quite like boring white middle class people looking for an identity. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And someone else more inventive having got there first. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it really does feel like there's no <laughs> identities available, like no exciting cultural identity available anymore. Yeah, I do think Normcore as well is a kind of spiritual thing. Like we can talk about it like, well, the way I'm using it anyway, because we can talk about it as an aesthetic, mm. but also, I mean, that really kind of lived and died and it's sort of diffused into culture now because everyone's still wearing those like dad jeans and like yeah. hats and yeah, it hasn't in a way it hasn't gone away, but um, it, it did sort of formally go away as trend. But yeah, I, but I guess that's the same with Vaporwave because like while it isn't yeah. hugely popular, as you were writing about in the Irish Times recently, like OPN, Well Tricks Point Never was like the musical director for the weekend Super Bowl game. So both these ideas have kind of been like just in, into normie culture. That's so true. Like they, they've kind of rather than go away and they mm. kind of branched out into, yeah, into everyday life. Um, like it's so funny fashion is something I study so much like Berlin was just so fun in that regard just watching what people were wearing oh God, yeah. and they're a different degree of normcore like um, no one dyes their hair and like women don't wear makeup and they yeah it's it's like normcore but with a little bit of matrix and antifa <laughs> That's how I would describe it like normie antifa like normie aesthetic. neo yeah, um, yeah uh, <laughs> like kind of deliberately anonymous um, with more kind of black denim than than the blue denim of like Seinfeld or something. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely still around. But that, that idea of being a perfect person who has nothing to show for themselves, like a kind of Chuck person's, like, yeah. oh, me, I'm just a person person. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, raw humanity. That to me is definitely a reflection of living under surveillance. Whether or not we are even aware of it, um, it seems to me natural like, as a response. What do you think is like the future of Vaporwave? Do you see it as having much more of a, of a life as its like own genre? Or do you think 
it is just going to be absorbed into the mainstream. It's really hard to say. I yeah. get the sense that a lot of those conversations around um, the death of vaporwave are actually people wanting it to die mm. so that they can formally now say like, oh, this is post-vaporwave. This is influenced by vaporwave. Yeah. Because right now it never reached its apotheosis, I think. And it sort of, it swallows things that are vaguely vapor wavy. One thing I was terrified of writing about it was that people would come for me and say like, that's not vapor wave, you know, that that's formally not part of the genre. But the thing is the genre is so amorphous and versatile um, that you could kind of bring in, there's a lot more that you could bring in and call vaporwave if, if you were a bit more brave about it. Like, mm. <laughs> um, but that gives it a versatility that will probably just go on forever. Like I could see Facebook 10 years ago, the way that Facebook looked, just that slightly older kind of like dustier version of Facebook and Twitter being then yeah. brought into the vaporwave aesthetic. Yeah. you know, as things change. But I, it's hard to know. I do think we're in a sort of, we are in what like Mark Fisher would have written about. There is no really defining aesthetic of now. No, not at all. Like it's really, I think I heard Adam Curtis talking about this, like just how no art now has really captured the vibe or the feel uh, yeah. of the times we live in. And it's so true. Like even, yeah, up to a few years ago, I feel, as you say, Vaporwave is, was, was like the sound of the internet and it did kind of capture the feel. I mean, it was through this lens of irony and nostalgia, but yeah. that did still feel kind of prescient or it did feel like how it felt to live in that era. But like there's not even an internet micro genre anymore. I thought they'd never go away. I thought they'd just be an endless loop. But like, what is <laughs> I think, the internet micro genre now? There's no- I, I'm I'm not deliberately like I'm accidentally trying to bring back C punk. <laughs> yeah, C punk didn't get the attention it deserved. Rihanna yeah. brought it to SNL, but after that it was. Yeah, that's it. I like uh, Witch House. Yeah, and Health Goth. Health Goth. If we ever get a summer, I'm going to start dressing health goth because that's yeah. a look. That's a good look. And you that can, was a like, really go, good look. Yeah, you can work out and then go straight outside and just wear the stuff you were wearing. It's <laughs> minimalist. I, yeah, it's really, though, it is really strange. Like, perhaps, I, I don't know if I believe this, but like perhaps emerging from lockdown will change that a little bit. I yeah. mean, even if it makes us a little more maximalist, a little more mm. reckless with how we dress ourselves. And, but uh, I don't know. I've just gone through two or three days where I started taking 5-HTP again, thinking it would I make me I took that for a while, yeah. It's kind of good, but it also gives you weird brain zaps, I think. Yeah, I was getting that? that as well, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one, though. And it does give you interesting dreams. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've, been, I've just been really down because it doesn't feel like the pandemic is ever going to end. Honestly. Yeah, I, I've been kind of getting that recently as well. And like, I was yeah. relatively optimistic for say the first like six months, but I just do feel I'm yeah. at a stage now where like this just feels like life indefinitely. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's the sort of trivial but very human things that are on my mind lately. Like just watching people going out at night. Like that was the most beautiful, beautiful thing about Berlin. That sense of possibility and seeing people dressing like dressing to go out like yeah. having fun with their lives with mm. with their themselves their personalities and just watching people because that's fuel for writers that's like sitting in a cafe watching people was one of the most important things in my life actually it's what got all my work done um yeah. and that's gone now yeah it's 
it's a very, I think there was an article that a friend of mine, uh, Shabelle, got really obsessed with um, about, I think it was on the New York Times by Kyle Cheka called uh, How We Began to Crave Nothingness. Mm. like yeah <laughs> about like the void yeah <laughs> the void is an aesthetic you know no <laughs> that that's true in. and like even musically you can kind of see that like i mean if if i was to say there's an internet micro genre now like it doesn't really have a defined aesthetic so i wouldn't call it that but like the lo-fi beats to study to thing is huge yes. and it's literally just like nothingness in a genre it's something that's like made to be unintrusive yeah. and not make you like think I think that, like, I listen to Lo-Fi Girls so much and, like, super liminal. The fact that, like, I think it was ContraPoints was saying this about that game, that, like, it is liminal spaces. It's literally just, like, anonymous corporate interiors. But that's exactly what we don't have. We Mm. don't have those neutral spaces. It's not that they're good inherently. It's just that they've been taken from us. Like, we live in this little kind of cozy bubble that the Lo-Fi Girl is is trapped inside. One day she'll break out. Free her. She's studying. She's studying for her test. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One day she'll take the test. Yeah. It's, I don't, <laughs> imagine One if you checked back. It. Like, imagine if one day you checked back and Lo-Fi Girl was gone away from her desk. <laughs> Damn, that would be spooky. I'm just so disturbing. She's the one constant in my life. She can't leave. Well, what, if, what if she was like, it was like Five Nights at Freddy's and like you come back <laughs> and she's just facing the camera and she's looking straight at you. <laughs> This would be a great horror film. I think I was going to say there, actually, some one upside, I think, might be that like cosmic horror is becoming mm. more of a thing. Like I watched that one that was getting talked about a lot online a few days ago called um, The Empty Man. It's truly, a, it's, it's mad. Like it's a good film. It's actually yeah. not bad at all. And uh, it really is just invoking very casually and assuming an intimacy um, uh, within the viewer with this idea of cosmic horror. Mm. Um, and of kind of facing down something which cannot be actually placed or contained, you know? (laughs) Um, And that I think that is definitely having a moment because, like, we're all on the brink of it, aren't we? (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess this is as good a time as any to end it. I think we've done an hour now. This is is bloody amazing. Thank you so much. Time flies by. (laughs) I know, zooming. But yeah, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And thanks for so much for like engaging with the book to such a degree. It's awesome. Like, it's mad. (laughs) So thank you so much to Roisin Kybert for chatting with me. It's a really, really interesting conversation. I'd highly recommend reading The Disconnect. I feel it really articulates a lot of the malaise that our generation can feel. Uh, Look, I don't want to call her the voice of a generation, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to go listen to Vaporwave now. Have a good day.